You are listening to the Get Global Network podcast of the Community Party Radio Show, hosted by David Samuels with co-host Mary L. Sanders. You can hear the show live on the first and third Tuesdays of each month at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on SoMetro Radio, one of the original member stations of the Get Global Network. This is Community Party Radio on Soul Metro Radio. I'm David Samuels. Uh, got a thing is an interesting show for you tonight. Our first guest is going to be a former Auburn, Alabama police officer Justin Hanners. He was uh, fired from the department from, for speaking up about corrupt practices at that department, specifically about uh, the, the, the ticket uh, quota system that was uh, implemented in that department in 2010. So he, we got him coming up uh, shortly. And also we're going to be talking about the in the Richard Glossop uh, death penalty case. We'll be talking about that in the second half hour with uh, Melissa Pazuti. She is a uh, activist who is based in New York. She's working to abolish the death penalty. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with that case, um, Richard Glossop is a, is a man who's currently on death row in Oklahoma for murdering his boss, despite the fact that there's strong evidence that points to his innocence. So we will definitely will be uh, getting into that in the second half hour. Uh, before we get started with Justin, just wanted to remind you that our Sandra Bland Police Reform and Economic Justice Plan is posted now on the Community Party Twitter page. Uh, we're going to present that plan to legislators. Uh, our uh, Community Party Twitter page is at Community Party One. That's our handle, at Community Party One. And also, shameless plug time, my book, False Choice, the bipartisan attack on the working class, the poor, and communities of color. is also um, information for ordering that book is also available on the Community Party Twitter page, at Community Party One. It's a nonfiction book about how Democrats and Republicans are both uh, ruining this country. And we, the Community Party Radio replay, the replay of this show tonight, will air uh, tomorrow the same time, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. So with all the, the housekeeping out of the way, now I'd like to welcome uh, Justin Hanners to the show. Justin, thanks for coming on with us. Oh, man, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Now, before we get into your story, uh, I, I, I sent you a, a, a clip of a video that surfaced yesterday uh, to, to um, Carlsbad, California uh, police officers uh, assaulted a woman uh, in, in front of their kids. For those of you who haven't seen the tape, it's pretty brutal. There's a, a second cop who, who arrives and just starts uh, punching away at this woman. It's, it's, it's a straight-up assault. Very shocking tape. And this, and this was a white woman that, that was being attacked. You know, typically, you know, when we see these tapes, it's usually a person of color. But this was a, a, a white woman who was brutally attacked in front of her children. Um, Justin, you're a former officer. I just wanted to get your thoughts when you saw that video. Well, uh, I shared, you know, your shock when I watched it. And it was just uh, heartbreaking to see. And, uh, 
you know, one thing that stood out is when she's reaching out and expecting that other officer to help her. And instead he comes in, he's one that started punching and putting his knee in her back and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I just, I just don't get how they're, they're trying to defend it. And of course, you know, they ended up dropping the charges, but you know, they, uh, the, the whole setup was, you know, she, she, uh, asked an officer what was going on. He was out on the car with the alarm going off and he told her to mind her effing business. And, uh, yep. she called in a complaint and then he comes in and pulls her over for alleged seatbelt. And then you know, her story is he, uh, he jumped on her and attacked her. And it was just, I mean, just ridiculous. You know, there's no way to, to justify it at all. Well, we're, we're definitely gonna, uh, file that story and keep up with, uh, with the developments, uh, for sure. But now to, uh, to your story, it's uh, definitely a, a interesting story. Um, now you were an officer with Auburn, Alabama police department. How, how long were you an uh, officer? Uh, six years. I was with okay. for six years, starting in 2006. So. Okay. Now, uh, what is your belief regarding, uh, the role of a police officer in the community? What should, what should a, a cop should be doing on the streets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the role of government in any capacity is to protect the rights of the citizens, to protect people and property from other people, not to to bully, not to do taxation through citation, not to harass it. They should impact the citizens' lives as little as possible and still maintain the, the safety of the community. Um, unfortunately, what we see is the, that in modern times you get into stat-driven police work, which is where a lot of this corruption and, and uh, hostility we're seeing is uh, is coming from. Now, in in 2010, a new uh, police chief uh, by the name of Dawson took over in your department, and he implemented uh, um, a system of ticket quotas that's actually prevalent and it's actually prevalent rather among uh, police departments in Alabama and all over the country. Could you please just break down exactly like how this policy works? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in 2006, you know, it was more community focused and things, but when he came in, they started pushing for more and more tickets, more and more arrests and things. And, um, once, you know, they had, they had cracked that whip enough times and weren't getting the number they wanted. They came out and they uh, told us that every officer had to have on average two tickets a day and two warnings a day. And, uh, they said it's, that that wasn't met, that, uh, you'd get written up, you'd get bad evaluations, you get passed over promotion and ultimately you'd be fired. Um, at that point I spoke out against it. And uh, they promptly retaliated against me and suspended me. Well, um, uh, we got moved to another shift. I got moved to bike patrol, uh, which, you know, bicycle cop on the university campus instead of in a patrol car. And then we got a new supervisor in on my new shift. And he said that our stats sucked and that, that that's to quote him. He said, quote, your stats suck. And that uh, admin has sent me here to fix you. And starting now, tonight, you'll have 100 contacts a month minimum. 40% of those can be warnings. The other 60 have to be tickets arrest, uh, non-traffic citations like a criminal littering ticket or something, or a terror stop field interview. We were drop, jumping out on folks, patting them down, um, checking for warrants. And they also started at this time uh, giving gift cards for like steak dinners and things to the officers that had the most tickets and arrest every month and ordering us to arrest people that officers didn't feel had done anything wrong. And it just really got out of control about that time. Now, I heard the, the videotape of this Sergeant O'Neill and he said straight up, he said, you know, don't be the officer, you know, that doesn't get the hundred contacts. What was the morale like before this new chief took over in 2010? Before that, um, I, I thought I had the best job in the world. You know, I was proud of where I worked, proud of what I did. Um, 
and morale was up, and we had a great police and public relation. And um, but uh, once once it changed, ninety nine percent of officers were in my corner and were just miserable. Um, everybody was grumbling, and you hear that in the recording. He said there's been a lot of quote, you know, uh, fussing. You know, not to quote him because he's cussing. I don't know if we we can curse on there, but he said there's a lot of uh people, you know, talking about quotas and disagreeing with it. And he said basically, you know, he doesn't want to hear any fussing, then don't let him hear it. And uh, you know, the first first month after implemented it. Again, remember, I'm a bicycle cop, um, so I had a 67 out of my 100 contacts. So uh, I had double-digit tickets, double-digit arrests, double-digit field interviews, um, and so uh, double-digit NTCs. So 67 out of 100, and I got written up. Um, and he put in black and white that on this date and time, I told you you'd have 100. You only had 67. You're getting written up. The next month, July, I had 111 contacts. So I exceeded his quota by 11. But he said that too many of my contacts were uh, field interviews, and I didn't have enough tickets. And uh, this this goes back to being about taxation through citation, about revenue generation. Because at the same time, every ticket book you turn in has a log with it and tells what it's for. And if you had a lot of non-fine or low-fine tickets, they'd call you in and get on to you and tell you, you need more meat tickets, something with a fine. And uh, and so after after that is when I filed my complaint, and uh, shortly after that, I was fired. So. Now, how would this, when this uh, quota system was was implemented, how did that af- affect the the morale of the other officers? Uh, it immediately one aided it and put it in the can. Um, everybody was unhappy. Everybody felt like, uh, you know, they were compromising their values as an officer, that their discretion was being taken away from them. Um, you, you had very, very few that were on board, um, and it was those officers that just kind of came up in the environment where that, to them, that's what good police work was, was getting out, you know, locking folks up and writing a bunch of tickets rather than community policing and stuff. But it, it you know, all the officers uh, were unhappy about it and complained about it and things. Now, how did this quota, you know, you've gone into, you know, the, you know, how the officers had to just basically manufacture um, cases, but just in general, how did the how did the this this the quota system just affect the the overall policing? Because I saw a video where uh, there was a reporter from the Huffington Post, and he said the danger of this uh, stat-driven policing is that cops focus on um, small crimes, manufacturing small crimes to to you know write people up for and they ignore the bigger crimes exactly uh what you see with the stat driven police work is that your your police become reactive they become criminal historians we sit around in speed traps or we sit around hiding watching stop signs or we just jump out on anybody we can make the excuse for that might be mind their own business to get numbers and uh so while we're doing that you know we're not patrolling our residential areas we're not patrolling our businesses or schools and then when a real crime happens, we show up after the fact, we uh, take a report, we go type it up, and we go right back to writing tickets. So we're doing a really good job of recording all the crimes that are happen- happening, but what we're not doing is actively deterring and detecting crimes, following up on cases and things. And so, you know, what you see is that uh, you start pushing and hurting your citizens, but you're really ignoring the, the bigger criminals and just kind of letting them run, run amok. And uh, it's just counterintuitive to what good law enforcement is and, and what has worked to actually reduce you know, uh, crime in all these different jurisdictions. Now, you, you said, you know, you, you took the, you know, the steps to address the quota policy and, and, and basically the, 
they came down on you like a brick. Were there any superiors at all who were who were supportive of what you were doing? There were several uh, high-ranking people in the department that had my back. Unfortunately, none of them were in a position to really make a lot of a lot of difference. Um, and uh, so a lot of them were rooting me on behind the scenes and, and trying to help out and trying to talk reason. But everybody in my direct chain of command, you know, were all told in the city line. And, and that's, you know, likely why they were in those positions they were in, because the city knew that they would play ball. So um, there were a lot of officers of all ranks that, that had my back and, you know, were also uh, disagreeing with the policies. However, you know, it was just nobody in a position to really help me out. Now, in your opinion, what is the the objective of this quota system? Uh, absolutely, it's to generate revenue. Um, it's it's all about taxation through citation. And uh, you see that with them telling us to uh, to go after meat tickets. You tell it with a, you know, with a number-driven police work to go out there and make tons of contacts and push the NTCs and things rather than, folk, you know, we had a huge burglar e- epidemic at the time. And you would think that if your city's getting carried off by burglars, that you would be spending all your time into in the neighborhoods and things where the burglars are happening. But when you've got a quota to get, and this, this quota is, you know, we're talking about 100 contacts per officer. And so if you're, you're figuring out how many officers we had, that's 72,000 contacts a year in a town with about 52,000 people. So you're looking at about 150% of your population that has to have a negative encounter with the police every year. And so the, the, what they're asking for is just ridiculous. There's just not that many people out there speeding and blowing red lights. So like, like you mentioned, you have to lower your standards and stuff. And, and, um, you know, so you end up, uh, you know, we had an officer, for example, that uh, he he parked in a dead end, put his trunk towards the dead end, and every car that came in down that dead end road and made a left turn into a apartment complex without cutting another blinker on, he would uh, turn in after him, write him a hundred and sixty-one dollar ticket for not cutting the blinker on, and he was held up as you know a great officer was out there working hard because he wrote twenty-five tickets in a day, but that's all he did that day. He didn't you know answer any calls for service or or patrol any areas and stuff. So kid, it's a uh, it's definitely about generating revenue and about making money for the city. And what was your reaction when you heard the Department of Justice report on, on uh, what was happening in Ferguson? Because they weren't even the worst offender when it came to using um, uh, ticketing to raise revenue. Uh, I saw an article, I believe it was in the New Yorker, was it the New Yorker or New York Times? I think it was the New York Times, where they said actually that Ferguson was like the seventh or eighth um, ranked municipality in terms of um, generating revenue. They weren't even like close to the top. There were other municipalities in in Missouri that were that were even worse. I, I think it it shows that if you know as bad as it was there, if they're not at the top, I think it shows how widespread the problem is and. How unfortunately that's become the norm in law enforcement is the the stats-driven police work, and uh, I said it's it's where you're going to see a, a lot of this corruption, a lot of the success of use force and things come from. There's actually a uh, a comment in one of the stories with this uh, Cindy uh, Hahn case we were talking about earlier, and uh, it was somebody living in the community, and that's what they said that uh you know the police used to be great, and then they switched the stats-driven police work, and that's when the uh, the police became agents of the the politicians that were tax collectors and. And that's when the public started losing a lot of respect for them when they started seeing all this violence and stuff occur because it makes that us and them mentality. You know, they kind of to harden themselves to go out there and, and write somebody two or three tickets for minor things to get those numbers. And, you know, it's, it's hard to do that and still look at a person as a person and sleep at night. So it's it's a widespread problem. And, uh, you know, the Ferguson issue, I just I just hate, you know, 
I just hate hearing and hate that that's kind of what we're looking at across the country right now. Now, kind of like going back to the to the video that we that we saw today. Now, I was thinking, you know, hey, these cops should they should be you know locked up, but but it's it is just not that simple. Can you talk about how the you know the union contract language and and bill of rights how that insulates officers from from being uh, held accountable? Um, we don't have unions as much down in my neck of the woods, but I do know what you're, what you're speaking of. A lot of what it is is uh, that, that the officer doesn't have to give a statement immediately because they'll say that, you know, adrenaline and the facts not might be clear. So he can have up to, you know, two weeks or even longer, sometimes 30 days, before he has to give any kind of official statement. That's a lot of time to, to review video and come up with the narrative and get the story straight and make things disappear that need to disappear and and uh and stuff, you know. And the, the thing about that is, civilians don't get that same courtesy you know they're interrogated on the spot you know they're uh you know what they're everything they're saying is going to the police report and stuff and also but a lot of what you'll see too is uh the whitewashing of officers and their records um one thing that uh auburn did is no matter how you 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 know policed whether good or bad they kept everybody in the middle in their yearly evaluations as far as their rating so not too good not too bad so they they didn't have to justify keeping somebody if they didn't want to, and they didn't have to justify getting rid of them if they didn't want to. And what they would do is if, like, you complain to me as an officer, um, that wouldn't go in my human resources folder. That would go in, like, my direct supervisor's folder. And uh, they would do this with every little thing they had on you. And so if come down the road, you get involved in a shooting or a situation like this, what they'll do is they'll open up your human resources folder and be like, look, he's got a clean record. He's never had any complaints. He's never had any, you know, anything suspicious. But if you become an officer that starts rocking the boat, they go back to the every supervisor you've had, and they go back, you know, the entire time you worked there and, and pull every time that, you know, your boots weren't shiny enough, you're a minute late for work or, you know, every complaint and basically paint you like a horrible officer and stuff. So mm-hmm. um, agencies are very, very good at, at shielding themselves and protecting their officers and, and also in court articulating, you know, uh, you know, how they just had to do what they had to do. Like in this case with this woman, you know, he's closed fist striking her. That's, you know, uh, hard, empty hand response. You know, that level of force with police training isn't supposed to be used unless they're aggressively resisting and actively trying. And uh, the officer feels like that person's doing them bodily harm. And, you know, th- you got a lady that's already face down on the grass with one arm behind her back and a, a bigger officer straddling her, you know, and then another officer runs up and his clo- closed fist repeatedly punches her in the face. And, and uh, how he's not indicted or at least out of a job at this point is, is beyond me. Now, what do you think of the, um, the the practice of right now? You have a thing where if an officer is is, is cleared on charges of, of misconduct, that it's expunged from the record. We had a um, we just had a cop here in Hartford. Now, actually, he was suspended twice. He he was not like uh, this wasn't a case of of a cop who, who was exonerated. He was suspended twice. And then he went on this drunken rampage in, uh, in a casino. This was uh, back in uh, July, uh, called uh, called black casino workers niggers. He was saying, "My grandfather owned owned your grandfather." Finally, uh, this cop gets fired. Now, what what was you know shocking to me is the fact that an officer like that, who had already been suspended twice, was was still on the street. Now, how 
you know, how does that work that that an officer like that can be, you know, subjected to 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 disciplinary action twice and he's still allowed like to interact with the public? That's an excellent question. Um, you know, most cities are supposed to have a, a progressive disciplinary policy where, you know, definitely your second strike, you know, with with just about anything, let alone your your first major strike on something like, you know, use force incident, you're supposed to be let go. But but uh, like I said, you know, they're they're good at whitewashing officers, and if you you get the numbers and play the game, they'll do everything they can to protect you and, and keep you working. Um, I've, you know, I was. It came out in my depositions that I was the only officer ever fired from the police department. And to put that in perspective, just while I was there, we had a, a a sergeant who was a supervisor that got drunk, beat his wife so bad she was hospitalized for multiple days, threw her out of the car and left her out in the middle of nowhere in the country. And uh, he got to keep his job and uh, work until he was able to uh, pay back his retirement stuff. We're talking about months still wearing a badge and gun and uh, going out and policing and stuff. So. Um, and then he was allowed to uh, resign and, and go work someplace else. And uh, now that's on his record and things. So, you know, you're talking about felony domestic violence. And this, you know, this isn't, that wasn't the only incident. We had a, an officer, another supervisor that was driving drunk off duty, almost hit an on-duty patrolman in a black and white head-on. Um, he, he wasn't, you know, I think he was suspended for a few days. I wasn't criminally charged, was put back to work, didn't lose any rank, and was still supervising. We had one of our officers get caught by... Uh, undercover narcotics, you know, buying narcotics from known drug dealers in the city, you know, not, you know, not as part of their job, but for personal use and things. And, and, uh, so, you know, you just see these, these agencies and departments, they'll toe the line and they'll whitewash their people and, and keep them in if they play the game. And, and if you don't, they'll push you out. So I honestly just don't know how that, how they're justifying not getting rid of a, an officer, like you said, that's been suspended multiple times for, for the same thing. So. Now, last week, uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch, uh, she was she was interviewed at, a, at, a, at an event, and uh, she was asked if the Department of Justice uh, planned to have police departments track the number of times police officers discharged their weapons. And her answer was no. She said, uh, we we do not believe that you know us in Washington should be reaching down. And um, and and um, meddling, I guess, is essentially what she was saying in the business of uh, police department. Um, what do you think of that position? Because to me, it seems it seems like she like she is protecting the police because it just seems to me preposterous that the Department of Justice would not want that information tracked, considering you know the high profile shootings. Uh, the, you know that we've had in the last uh, couple of years. Yeah, and um, I really don't know. Um, it's it's one of those things that there's got to be some kind of oversight, and I, I'm not one to to look to Washington to track it. But if it's not getting done in their communities, police have to be accountable to somebody. They can't just investigate mm-hmm. themselves and say, you know, we've done nothing wrong. So if the DOJ is not willing and the Attorney General is not willing, then somebody needs to. Um, I know. You know, when I made my complaint, I, I did everything the state had. I mean, I went to the Alabama Ethics Commission, the Attorney General, the District Attorney was present when I made my first complaint to the Chief. Um, we went to the EEOC, and it's just like nobody's willing to help us. But police have to be accountable to somebody. And it's something like tracking, you know, you know, shootings by officers. You would think that that would be a running database that, that somebody would have some oversight on. So I, I can't speak to, to her motivation to it. But, it, it, like you said, it kind of sounds like she's just trying to wipe her hands and, and not get involved with it. So. 
at the very least, the, it should the police department should be tracking it. You know, somebody got they're, to even if they're pool, even if they're pooling the data. You know, you know, have some kind of you know the national like network of data. This, this, these, the state they, that data should be kept. Yeah, the state public safety, you know, uh, or something should track the municipalities and counties and things. You know, so, like I said, that's something somebody needs to know and somebody needs to keep track of. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what's going forward? What's what's happening with you now? Well, uh, I'm going to school right now. Um, still, still going for criminal justice. I've got my criminal justice certificate, and I'm about to uh, get my associates and enter an accelerated bachelor's program. But um, I still, you know, travel and I do speaking and things and uh, and give talks. And um, I'm working with a group, hopefully, to be able to start supporting other whistleblowers and things in similar situations, as as well as perhaps, you know, in cases like this with the city, the Cindy Hahn lady, give some. Uh, some testimony on her side to what officer training looks like, to what we're trying to do in those situations, what our use of force model looks like, and kind of be a uh, a voice for those that have had the rights and things stepped on. So just trying to, to uh, from the outside, still affect change within the system and stuff and, and working to, to do what I can to get law enforcement back to what it's supposed to be in this country. Well, Justin Hanner, you know, I, uh, I want to thank you for coming on tonight. And, you know, usually, you know, we get – you know, us that, uh, that speak up against police violence and racial profiling, you know, I don't think we we stress enough, you know, officers, the importance of officers like you who did step up and, and speak out against, you know, racism and brutality and, and corruption in, you know, in your departments. And, you know, I think, like, officers like you, I believe, are the true heroes because, you, you know, you, you put everything on the line. And uh, I just want to say, you know, I, I thank you for, for taking that step. I wish you uh, the best of luck in, in the future. And uh, I definitely want to have you on again because I've been saying I think we definitely need to make a space in, the, in this movement for, for, for current former officers like yourself who, who are speaking up against uh, corruption uh, in police departments. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate your kind words. I appreciate you having me on. And anytime you need me, just give me a call. I'll be glad to, to come on the way in. I appreciate it, man. Justin Hanners, former uh, Auburn, Alabama police officer, uh, has been our guest. On the other side of the break, uh, we're going to talk about um, the uh, Richard Glossop um, death penalty case, uh, a case that uh, has a lot of elements of the the Troy Davis case uh, of uh, uh, a few years ago. Uh, We will have... uh, death penalty uh, abolition activist Melissa Pazuti. She will be on with us on the other side of the break. You're listening to Community Party Radio on Soul Metro Radio. Stay tuned for more interesting conversation and information on the Community Party Radio Show hosted by David Samuels. Coming up next. You're listening to Community Party Radio on Soul Metro Radio. I'm David Samuels. On the second half of our show, we're going to talk about uh, the Richard Glossop death penalty case. Uh, we have with us uh, activist uh, Melissa Pazuti. She's been uh, working to abolish the death penalty. For those of you who aren't familiar with the case, uh, Richard Glossop, he worked at a, at, a, at a motel, and his boss was murdered. Uh, the man who actually did the murder... Um, he admitted that he did the murder, but he said that Richard Glossop uh, offered him uh, money and career advancement opportunities uh, for for killing in exchange for killing his boss. 
Now, basically, on this guy's um, word, uh, Richard Glassett is currently on death row. Uh, last week, uh, he came to about, I think, about as close as you can come uh, to being executed. Uh, the, the execution was uh, stayed by the Oklahoma governor, uh, Mary Fallon, um, because of uh, the serious questions even about the Oklahoma Department of Corrections about their um, competence in terms of even uh, carrying out these executions and and, and, and we're going to get it we're going to get into all we're going to get into all of that uh, during during our interview uh, Melissa I want to thank you for coming on uh, the show with us tonight oh thank you so much for having me now, if you just could, just please, like, just provide, you know, the, you know, the, the basic facts of, of this case, the Richard Glassett case. Um, in 1997, Richard Glassett was sentenced to uh, death, the only on the... Um, word of the person who actually committed the murder. Um, his name was Sneed. Um, he was informed during his questioning that if he pointed the finger at someone else, the death penalty would be taken off the table. And he was also told that Richard Sneed was pointing the finger at him. So he did what Practically, I think most people would do to save his own life. He pointed the finger at someone else. And to this day, he is now serving a life sentence at a medium security prison. Now, there, uh, because Richard Glossop was never accused of actually committing the murder, there is no forensic evidence. All that they have is that there was a slight... Um, amount of money missing that um, the victim, uh, Van Trees, um, told Glossop that he should um, take care of. It was a little bit over $6,000, which also doesn't make much sense when it's stated that he was going to pay Richard Sneed um, $4,000 to kill him. If he had $4,000 on hand, why would he be so concerned about this missing $6,000? Um, and actually for the 12 months prior, um, to the murder, 11 of those months, Richard Glossop was given, um, bonuses from Von Trees for being such a wonderful employee. So there is no ill will between those two. So there doesn't seem to be any motive for Richard Gossip to be to want to kill him. And that is literally the only evidence that they had. Um and like most people Richard Glossop did not have adequate counsel because, unfortunately, he was relying upon um, the lawyers that, you know, the lawyers today, if you can't afford one, you're going to be given one that has a caseload of about 175 people. And as wonderful as those lawyers may be, no one can do an adequate job when you have a caseload that that's that large. And the videotape 
of Smooth's confession was not put into evidence. The jury never saw that his story changed. And then when he was, uh, initially, his, um, the case was thrown out. He was given a new trial. And in his second trial, um, again, the videotape of the confession was not shown, and it was not highlighted. But again, now his story had changed from the first investigation to the second investigation. So inadequate counsel is an obvious reason that he should the the verdict should be thrown out. Um, but that's not what the prosecutors in Oklahoma want to do. Um, and it has come forward that, according to Smooth's daughter, he wants to come and tell the truth, but has been told by the prosecutor that if he changes his story, his plea deal will be taken off the table and they will give him the death penalty. And allegedly, um, the word around town is that he's even more scared of getting it because of all the botched executions that have been happening. Um, especially in Oklahoma, um, with Clayton Lockett, who took 103 minutes to die while on the table. Now, the, I've read where one of the jurors uh, in Glossop's uh, uh, trial, she said that if she knew now, if she knew then what she knows now about the case, she would have voted for an acquittal. I, I bet it's not just her. Um, if if they knew the truth, if they knew half of what we've just seen watching the news, they probably would have acquitted him. Wow. Now, the, the Oklahoma Court of uh, Criminal Appeals, they granted Attorney General Scott Pruitt's request for an indefinite stay on the executions due to questions over the Department of Corrections' uh, ability to carry out its, ex its execution protocol. The Republican Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon, uh, she she did uh, grant a stay uh, at like the last minute of Richard Glass's execution, but she 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 opposes his effort, efforts to stop the, his execution. She um based the the stay on what's going on with the with the situations uh with with the drugs now um if you could just describe the events of last wednesday uh as richard glass just came to the the, the brink of being executed and uh, your efforts on his behalf because you, you know i saw you were really active on social media like up to the up, up to the, the, the very end uh, to, to get him a stay. Um, yes. Uh, the, uh, from how um, the governor is reacting, you would think that Richard Glossop was accused of killing one of her own family members. I don't know why she is so dead set on ending this man's life. It seems almost personal. And I'm not really getting where that's coming from. Um, luckily, it was noticed with 10 minutes left to execution that rather than having potassium 
acetate on on hand, they, um, excuse me, I got it backwards. Instead of potassium chloride on hand, they had potassium acetate. Um, And the whole reason this is happening is because we used to get all of our execution drugs sent to us from Europe. Um, And Europe, on the whole, except for one country, is against the death penalty and told the United States that they would no longer be selling us these drugs. Um, And now we have no quote-unquote safe execution drugs in the United States at the moment. Um, They only have the drugs that, again, with Clayton Lockett, took 103 minutes to kill him. They even called off his execution. Um, They aborted it after they had already injected him with all of those drugs. Um, But at that point, there was nothing that could be done to save him, and he died of a heart attack. And all witnesses report that he was in pain. He was in pain that entire time, and that is cruel and unusual punishment, and that is not supposed to be what we do in this country. Now, most people, including myself, consider um, any form of death penalty to be cruel and unusual, but even if you don't feel like I do, you cannot say that taking 103 minutes to die is humane. Now, what we were doing um, on social media that day was basically giving a countdown of this man has a half an hour to live, he has 25 minutes to live, he has 20 minutes to live, and I was providing the phone number to reach um, the governor's office to request a stay, and when it came to 15 minutes left, they stopped answering the phone. Um, There was no way to get through to a real human being. I did not get through to one until about 10 minutes after the execution was supposed to take place. And unfortunately, on the news that day, Russia had bombed somewhere in Syria, so they had stopped covering the case, so none of us knew um, what was going on. Excuse me. Um, So 10 minutes after the execution was supposed to take place, they finally answered the phone and told me that a stay had been issued. Um, And there's still some question whether it was for 31 or 37 days. Um, But they were... Yes. Um, And they had actually gotten cowardly enough to not answer the phone. Um, They then... um, they had been rude the entire time that day. Actually, I had one of her um, receptionists that answered the phone scream at me um, when I asked when Richard Glassop's executioner's murder trial would begin. Um, she insisted I was trying to be funny, and I tried to assure her that I found nothing about murder or execution funny, and I assured her that murder and execution are one and the same. Um, now, of course, Sister Helen, who was featured, you know, of the movie, um, Dead Man Walking was about her. She was doing as much as possible as well that day, trying to save his life. And, uh, luckily it happened, but it also has to be considered that was the fourth time that happened to Richard Glossop this year. And that's another case of being cruel and unusual. He prepared for his own death four times since January 1st of this year, including having his last meal. 
that's how close he came. That has to be psychologically torturing. And one of the main things I always mentioned, because I was calling the governor's office every day to tell them to put in a stay, and they would tell me that, you know, he was found um, guilty twice by a jury. And I would always point out to them that all 155 people that have been exonerated from the death row since its reinstatement in 1976 went through the same exact process he did and went through the same appeals he did and were found guilty and lost sometimes up to 25, 30 years of their life on death row before it was finally proven that they were innocent most of the time thanks to the Innocence Project, which provides DNA testing. Um, and I actually have a personal story relating to that. I have a brother-in-law who is a corrections officer, and he ran into one of his ex-inmates the other day. It wasn't a death row case, but this man had finally been exonerated after 20 years um, in a maximum security prison. DNA evidence cleared him and he finally got set free and if we can't be sure of who we're executing in my opinion we can't be executing anyone um 10 people were found to be innocent after they were executed that's what we know of we know 10 innocent people have been executed in this country since 1976 is that something that we all as a country want on our conscience that we're executing innocent people and you're ha and we're having a lot of people getting exonerated now by dna yes thank goodness thank goodness but it came too late for some and you know, the Innocence Project, you know, they need money. They need people to donate so that they can do these tests. And this isn't on the top of a lot of people's list. It's still about 50% of this country still supports the death penalty, which I find shocking in the year 2015. Now, Glasses' plight has been really blamed on ambition. Uh, I heard... Uh, interview with one activist on democracy now and she said just straight up she said the reason why uh, Richard Glossop is still uh, facing uh, death is is because of the uh, prosecutors who are just they are hell-bent on getting um, uh, prosecutions and they don't care who goes down as long as somebody goes down uh, right. for, for the for the crime what, what, what do you think of that observation well, I think um, it is proven by the fact that between 90 and 95% of cases are pled out now in this country um, because um, lawyers are just telling their clients just to plead guilty in order to not go to jail for 20 years to avoid mandatory minimums. Um, people are just saying, fine, I'm guilty, because they're scared of the mandatory minimums, which are, it, it's so racist, uh, it, it's difficult for me to even talk about. When I was watching, um, uh, when President Obama went and visited those prisoners in jail, and I learned that um, when mandatory minimum was were put in place that 100 grams of powdered cocaine was equal to one gram of crack cocaine in terms of sentencing. The blatant racism of that policy 
is horrifying. And that prosecutors are just, they, they, they want to run for political office and saying, you know, having the good statistics, you know, I put away 95% of the people I tried. Yeah, well, you put them away because you scared them with mandatory minimums and they pled guilty. You didn't do anything. Um, the, governor, <laughs> uh, the governor of Connecticut, where the community party is based, he's a former prosecutor, Daniel Malloy. Yes, prosecutors love to move on to be senators and governors, and they act like they do so much work to get all these cases found guilty, and they're not really doing anything. All they're doing is scaring people. They're saying if you go to trial, chances are you'll be found guilty, and you'll get 25 years, but if you plead guilty, we'll give you five years. There was even one young man on the, that um, President Obama met with who pled guilty to a crime that he was accused of while he was incarcerated. The crime happened while he was in jail and he still pled guilty because he was so afraid of being sentenced to 25 years in jail. And that's what our justice system has turned into. Now please talk about the role that this structural racism plays and how the death penalty is administered. Because I've read that uh, a, a, a black person is more likely to get the death penalty if they kill a white person than a black person. Uh, the, the death penalty is more likely to be administered if the if the victim is white. Just how how does how does structural racism uh, play in the play in capital punishment? Um, I think the main way is um, being able to afford a good lawyer. Um, that's what um, it all comes down to. I actually, I actually wrote down a quote from our Supreme Court Justice um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 2001. She said almost all capital punishment cases are represented by a public defender. Um, and people who are um, poorly represented, represented at trial do not get the death penalty. And she said, I have yet to see a death penalty case among the dozens coming to the Supreme Court on the eve of execution, stay applications in which the defendant was well represented at trial. And we all know that there is institutional racism in this country that wants to keep African Americans in the ghetto and not earning um, good money. And if you don't have good money and you get accused of murder, you are getting the death penalty. And I think it's on purpose. I mean, we have more black men in jail now than we had slaves in 1850, and it's not on accident. Now, the death penalty was abolished here in Connecticut uh, last year. Uh, what do you think are the obstacles to getting uh, capital punish abolished uh, nationwide? Because it's, it's, it just seems to be, uh, not seems to be, it's, it's one of those uh, third rail issues uh, politically. Um, well, I view Republicans as the obstacle, uh, honestly. Um, it is something that they, I, I live in New York, and when 
uh, Pataki was elected, one of the big things she ran on was, I'll bring the death penalty back. Um, because allegedly it's a deterrent to crime, which we know isn't true. Allegedly it's cheaper than housing someone for their entire life, which we know isn't true. It is usually $1 million more expensive for a death penalty case than a non-death penalty case. And I don't know why or when opinions became more important than facts in this country, but that's what happens. And people like to believe that it's cheaper and that it deters crime, but I can tell you that no one commits a crime thinking they're going to get caught. And there has been study after study to show that it is not a deterrent. Um, and there's been study after study that shows that it doesn't even make families or the victims feel better. Some, it does, I, I'll admit that, but the vast majority think they're going to feel better and then it happens, and it doesn't bring their loved one back. And they feel the same, and now you've created two families who had someone taken away from them. I mean, the death certificate for each person executed in this country says homicide. And that's what it is. And for some reason, being tough on crime, which Republicans love to say they're tough on crime, involves executing people. And there, in the United States, there are crimes other than murder that you can be executed for, including drug trafficking, which is another, which shows racism. If you can be executed for um, drug trafficking with special circumstances that that uh, that makes me feel sick. You can also be executed for treason and espionage. And in Louisiana, you can be executed for the rape of a child. And now, please don't mistake, don't think I have any sympathy for someone who rapes a child. But to kill them, to kill anyone, it's not our place. If you believe in God, then it's God's decision when someone dies. If you don't believe in God, then it's nature's decision when someone dies. And just because someone committed that atrocity doesn't mean that we should commit the same atrocity toward them, because what does it accomplish? I haven't heard one thing that the death penalty allegedly accomplishes that it actually does. Now, how can people get in contact with you to, to support your work? Um, right now, I am on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is at FireSquirrely. Um, it's F-I-R-E-S-Q-U-R-L-L-Y. And I also implore people to go to SisterHelen.org. There is no one fighting harder to get rid of the death penalty in this country than that woman is. Um, and I also, one, one of the biggest reactions I got on Twitter last Wednesday was when I asked where all the pro-life people were fighting for Richard Glossop's life because they were noticeably absent, absent from the discussion. And I think we need to change the terminology in this country from pro-life to pro-birth. Because once these fetuses turn into babies, that's all those people care about. After that, they don't want them on welfare, they don't want them in good schools, and they certainly don't want them alive if they commit a murder. 
death penalty abolition activist Melissa Pizzuti has been our guest. Uh, if, if you want to get in contact with Melissa on Twitter, you can actually go to the community party page because we did uh, we did promote her appearance on the show tonight earlier tonight. So you just go to the community party Twitter page at community party one. Uh, just scroll down and you'll, you'll you'll see her handle on there and definitely uh, follow her because she's a uh, Believe me, I saw it last week when leading up to the Glossop execution. She she's very passionate and she's doing some serious work. Uh, Melissa, I want to thank you for coming on, and and we definitely want to have you on um, in the future. Uh, I'd love to, and thank you for having me. Um, this is a very important issue that you know gets swept under the table because some people don't find it important, but I find human life there's nothing more important. We'll wrap up on the other side of the break. Uh, this is Community Party Radio on So Metro Radio. Stay tuned for more of the Community Party Radio Show hosted by David Samuels. You're listening to Community Party Radio on So Metro Radio. I'm David Samuels, uh, wrapping up another edition. Uh, we're just complaining to our program director, Ken uh, K. Rose. I've been under the weather uh, all week, but uh, I managed to pull it together. And um, I definitely uh, appreciate uh, Justin Handers uh, for coming on tonight and also uh, Melissa Pizzuti for coming on. Uh, they both gave, uh, I think, a lot of good information about a couple of very important issues. Now, once again, I want to remind you that our Sandra Bland Police Reform and Economic Justice Plan is uh, it's, it's available. It's posted, pinned to the top of the Community Party Twitter page. We're going to present that plan to legislators. Uh, community Party handle is at uh, Community Party One. That, that's where you can uh, go for that information. Uh, my book, False Choice, the Bipartisan Attack on the Working Class, the Poor, and Communities of Color, Ordering Info, is available on uh, the Community Party Twitter page. Uh, getting some good feedback um, on the book, which is nice. So if, if you want to check it out, I would definitely uh, appreciate that. Uh, and finally, uh, Community Party Radio, the replay of tonight's show will air uh, tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. So if, if you missed any of uh, tonight's show, uh, have no fear. You can tune in uh, tomorrow tomorrow night and hear, and hear whatever you missed, or if you want to just hear the show again, can uh, tune in and, and, and hear the repeat. So we will be back in a couple of weeks. We're going to have former LAPD uh, office, former LAPD sergeant uh, Cheryl Dorsey uh, on the program. Uh, she will talk about uh, police culture and police corruption and and what uh, officers are. Uh, are going through at that department officers who get on the bad side of uh, their superiors. Uh, she's got a book out called Black and Blue, and, and, and she's definitely got a story to tell. So she will be on um, in two weeks. So uh, that's the end of our show uh, for tonight. I'm David Samuels. You've been listening to Community Party Radio on So Metro Radio. See you in a couple of weeks. And again, tune in for the replay tomorrow night. You have been listening to the Get Global Network podcast, 
of the Community Party Radio Show, hosted by David Samuels and co-hosted by Mary Sanders. You can hear the show live on the first and third Tuesdays of each month, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on SoMetro Radio, one of the original member stations of the Git Global Network. Listen to the show on the go or hear replays of previous shows by installing any of the Git Global Network apps like SoMetro Magazine and Grassroots Salute for your cell phone. The apps are available for download on both Google Play and the iTunes app store. Take the time to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or the Spreaker Podcast Network. 